Hi, it's Bethany. Before we get started today, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you all about our amazing new Patreon project. Our little band of podcasters likes to eat, and we also like to have new equipment so we can bring our voices to your ears. So we are currently redoing our Patreon tiers. Now, when you sign up, you can get special magnets, mugs, and totes to support science for the people. We are also doing a specialty birthday card. Sorry, this is not about your birthday. It's not that we don't care about your birthday, but anyway... It's a birthday card, and it's about the birthday of a scientist that we think is worth knowing about. If you sign up to give $5 or more per month, we'll send you the special birthday card with specialty art about an important scientist who history has kind of overlooked. We'll also offer a special podcast about them. Who's the scientist? That's the surprise. To get the card, you have to sign up by May 15th, which is almost here. So get on that. The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we are learning about how personality is studied in two of our favorite animals, pigs and fish. We'll be speaking with Rose O'Day, PhD candidate at the Evolution and Ecology Research Center in Sydney, about using computer animation technology to stimulate behavioral responses in zebrafish. Then we'll speak with Christina Horbach, assistant professor at the University of California, Davis, about the connection between personality traits in domesticated pigs and their ability to cope with stressful farm conditions. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Anika Hasra. With me is Rose O'Day, PhD candidate at the Evolution and Ecology Research Center in Sydney, Australia. Rose, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's start with you. Just tell me about the research you've done in general on zebrafish. Well, for my PhD, we're using zebrafish to look at individual variation in lots of traits, but particularly behavior and metabolism. Um, So I'm doing two big experiments. One where I'm manipulating their environment, so their developmental temperature, which means that we split zebrafish eggs between three incubators, one that's normal, one that's cool, and one that's warm. And then once they, the eggs hatch, we keep them at the same temperature for the rest of their lives, and we see how that affects their phenotype. Um, and then the other one, we're measuring the same thing. So we're measuring behavior, metabolism, growth, reproduction, uh, but instead of manipulating their environment, we're manipulating their gene expression. Um, so we can knock out a gene in these zebrafish. So we can knock out one copy, which means that they underexpress this gene. It's a gene that's involved in metabolism. And then we look for differences in their traits. So could you quickly define phenotype for me? Sure. Well, the phenotype is the physical manifestation of your genotype. The genotype is the sequences of your DNA, whereas your phenotype is how that translates Um, into an organism. So two individuals that have the same genotype will have a different phenotype if they've been raised in a different environmental conditions or they're exposed to a different environment. That's really cool. So how did you end up studying uh, personality traits in zebrafish? Um, We're really interested in the variation in animals because variation is important to evolution. You can't have evolution without variation um, because evolution relies on heritable variants in the population, which are then selected upon and those variants increase in number. But that also means you need to explain how variation is maintained in a population because uh, you think that there might be some optimal, say, behavior to exhibit in a particular scenario. Why doesn't every individual in the population exhibit that behavior? Um, so we're interested in what causes that variation to exist and what are the processes that can maintain that variation. 
And zebrafish are just a good system. They're a good model organism to study these things because, uh, first of all, their genomes fully sequenced, so people do a lot of genetic work with them, so you can get to the how the uh, genes affect the phenotype. Um, and they're easy to keep in a lab. Uh, yeah, they have short generation times, things like that. So are zebrafish known to demonstrate different types of personalities? Um, yes. Uh, there's been a bit of personality research on them, but basically every animal that people start looking at seems to have personality. Um, uh, some people don't like the term personality because it kind of anthropomorphizes animals. Uh, but it, and that's why we call it animal personality rather than just personality. But it basically just means that uh, individuals in the population are varying in their behavior, um, but uh, uh, within individuals, there's less within individual variation than there is between individual variation. So how much of animal personality do you think could be attributed to nature versus nurture? Basically, a lot of it is nature in the sense that if we take our animals and we raise them in the same environment, we still see individual differences. But why those individual differences exist is uh, an open topic. That's why there's so much research in this area. So um, uh, the other thing about personality traits is that they tend to be linked. So um, the individuals who say are more bold will also be more active or aggressive, and that's what's called a behavioral syndrome or a coping style. So some individuals are more proactive and some are reactive. Um, and so this could either be because there's maybe genetic constraints, so that some genes that cause one behavior are also linked to cause another behavior, or um, a common explanation is that the variation in behavior is caused by variation in uh, another trait, like a physiological trait, like metabolic rate, um, that's less likely to vary than than behavior. So it's harder to change your metabolism than it is your behavior. But if there's individual variation in metabolism, then that can lead to variation in behavior. So behavioral syndrome, is that basically what we would refer to as a a personality type in a human, but instead for a non-human animal? Yeah, I guess so. So so you, you you do one of those personality quizzes that says that you're an extrovert or an introvert because you have these many traits that tend to be correlated with each other. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of analogous. Uh, but there's another way. When you think about personality, uh, most of the research so far has quantified repeatability. Uh, so a trait mm-hmm. is called a personality trait if it's repeatable, which means that um, most of the behavior within the population or a significant amount of the variation in the behavior within the population is explained by between individual variation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means that the trait is repeatable either if there's a lot of between individual variation or if there's um, not much within individual variation. But something we're also interested in is what we're calling predictability, which is variation in within individual variation, which is it's a bit hard to think about when there's so many <laughs> kinds of variation, but it basically means um, so some individuals might behave really consistently, so they're always bold, but some might be more erratic, like they have a wider distribution in their behavior. Sometimes they're this way and sometimes they're that way, um, but you need a lot of repeated measurements of the same individuals to get this because you need to build up a distribution for each individual. Um, so that's what we've been trying to do with our zebrafish by getting lots of measurements of the same individuals. It's really interesting. So have you seen in your research so far, do you think you could possibly see um, evolution of these personality traits within one zebrafish over its lifetime? Has that ever happened? Um, well, so I'm still analyzing the data. So I don't, that is something that we want to look at, which is how, how does 
how does these differences in behavior change over the course of, well, we don't quite have a lifetime, but change over the course of a long period of time for a zebrafish. Um, and there's sort of nerdy statistical um, implications for that because some of the model assumptions assume that the uh, within individual variation is sort of consistent across time. And if that's violated, it can cause problems. Um, but yeah, it, it, another interesting area is whether your variation as an individual is different to your variation as an adult. There's sort of different selective pressures that are on, uh, that are on you when you're small and maybe um, more able to be eaten than when you grow up and you're, and that's different for different species too. Unfortunately, with zebrafish, we can't get individual level data until they're old enough to mark because they're quite social animals. So we can't, we have to house them, um, as, as groups of fish. Otherwise they get anxious. And so we need to wait until they're big enough for us to give them a little tattoo. <laughs> so I do have some behavior data for, for the babies, but that's only group level data. I can't get the individual level data. All right. So here is a somewhat, well, yeah, a philosophical question for you. Um, how do you personally define personality? Well, in my head, I really distinguish it between personality, whether we're talking about humans, because psychologists have been studying that for a long time, where you have, you know, your big five personality traits, um, or animals when I define it more, uh, I guess, statistically as the, as behavior that varies between individuals, but is relatively consistent within individuals. So why can't you have the same or a similar definition for animals, non-human animals and humans? Why are we distinct from each other? Well, I guess that's why you said philosophically, because mm-hmm. it, it gets to, we, we don't, we, we only know what it's like to be ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I guess then you can get, really, we only know what it's like to be I only know what it's like to be me. I don't know what it's like to be you. I assume that what it's like to be you is very similar to what it's like to be me. But, you know, what is blue, really? I only only know what I see. So it's that sort of issue. But then when you're talking about, so so you can get to those philosophical debates about between different humans. When you're talking about different species, particularly ones that can be quite distantly related, um, it it, it can get a bit dangerous to anthropomorphize in that way. And even within the animal personality literature, you do run into issues of what are we actually measuring? We say that we're measuring boldness, for example, when we present, say, a zebrafish with a model of a predator. And we say that the zebrafish that, um, that don't sh- shy away from that predator, we say that they're less shy, less anxious, they're more bold. But the, we're using sort of human emotion terms. Um, and it can be tricky to determine which of these uh, quote-unquote behaviors really, really matter or have relevance in the wild ecology of these animals, or if they're just artifacts of the lab setting. But that's also why we try to choose behaviors that have this high repeatability. We're kind of making the implicit assumption that if a trait is repeatable within individuals, then it must have some meaning. But the labels that we put on those behaviors might uh, be a bit subjective, which could also be why there's so many terms in the personality literature. So some people don't really like the term animal personality, they might say individual differences in behavior or coping styles or behavioral syndromes. It's all kind of talking about the same stuff, but, uh, or even just plasticity, which is, um, a, a long area of research before people started focusing on plasticity and behavior. Okay. So let's get into your research methods. Um, so how did you go about studying personality traits in zebrafish? Yeah. Well, when I joined the lab, we, didn't have anything set up. It was a new lab. So it was a lot of, uh, trips to hardware stores and researching what other people have done. Um, and we had a really good lab assistant who did a lot of this work. But first of all, you read other papers and see, uh, how other people are testing for behavioral traits in zebrafish. 
Um, but the basic idea is that you put a fish in a tank and then you watch it, you see where it goes. Um, so you can just watch how much it moves to measure its general activity levels because they're social animals. So if they're, uh, if you take them out of their shoal and you put them by themselves, they'll be a bit anxious. So you can look at them that way. But then to measure other behavioral traits like their sociality or their aggression or boldness, uh, you display a stimulus at one end of the tank and then you see. So what kind of a stimulus are you talking about? Okay. Um, so there's different options for using stimulus. So you can put a tank, uh, next to the tank and you can put live animals in there. So you could put live zebra fish or you could put a predator that in the wild it might eat zebra fish. Uh, or you could put a mirror, which the zebra fish can't recognize its reflection. So it might try to fight with the mirror. Um, but other re- research had shown that if you show a video stimulus, so you, instead of showing a live zebra fish, you can show a video of a zebra fish, or you can show an animated predator that swims across the screen menacingly, that those have, those elicit similar responses in the zebra fish to if you'd used a live model. So that's what we decided to use, and we did do some trials to check that it was consistent with using live fish. Um, so the stimulus we have, we have a, an animated predator on a video screen that moves across slowly. Uh, we've got a video of a shoal of zebra fish, and we've got a video of one zebra fish that looks sort of aggressive, and then we've also got a novel object, which is just a clip art shape that moves across the screen like the predator. And we have them on a, um, a tablet that we put against the screen, against one end of the tank. So we have a rectangular tank that has opaque sides and then two transparent ends. And each end of the tank has one uh, video put against it. And the video is displaying nothing. And then throughout the trial, it will display a stimulus. And we measure those four types of stimulus over the course of a trial. And they're separated with breaks of nothing. And then this means that we can have a high throughput system where we have multiple tanks set up next to each other uh, with uh, one fish in each tank and then videos that play these stimulus um, and they're pseudo-randomized, which is getting a bit technical, but just to alter the order in which stimulus are played and it ensures that everything's consistent. So why would you use these tablets? Why would you use video? Um, what's the benefit to doing that instead of using live animals in a different tank? Well, it means that uh, the, the fish is showing, being shown a consistent image, so you can control um, what they're actually seeing. Whereas if I put in a few zebra fish at one end of the tank and then I see in individual differences between individuals, I won't know whether that's because the individual fish are behaving differently or if my stimulus were just behaving differently, maybe the fish that I put in or went to some other end of the tank. Um, so it's re- it's reducing variation in the stimulus so that you can uh, nail down what's causing the variation in the behavior. It also means that it's it can be high throughput because we can, by using a video, we can show different types of stimulus all at one go without having to get in there and interrupt the trial by taking out you know, zebra fish and putting in something else. But how do you know that the zebra fish recognize the images they're seeing? They know what they're Um, looking at. So by looking at the behavior. So the way we look at their behavior is by um, videoing. So we we have a a video that sits above the tank and we can control that from an external screen, a video recorder, I should say. And that records uh, where the fish are swimming. And there's computer software that will track the fish. So they make tracks of where the fish has swum and how fast they're swimming and so then we can look at their, uh, how they respond when the stimulus is there as opposed to where it isn't. And so we can, we know they're responding to the stimulus because they change their behavior when the stimulus comes on. 
So do zebrafish rely exclusively on their vision to detect other living things, or do they also use their sense of smell, maybe, um, you know, uh, their chemical receptors or whatnot? Yeah. Yeah, they rely on chemical sensors too. So that is a, a flaw with using this system because they don't have the chemical sensors. Okay. So for the study that you're referring to, you and your the team of researchers involved in the study focused on five particular personality traits. So can you explain what those five personality traits are? Yes. Um, so the first is just your general activity levels. Uh, so if you put the fish in a new environment, how much do you explore? So it's an idea of exploration. Uh, the next one would be aggression. So if I show one zebrafish, um, how much does it try to interact with that fish? Because in the wild, they might be trying to establish a, a dominance hierarchy. They've got resources they're trying to defend and they do fight with each other. And then a similar one is with if you show a shoal of zebrafish, how social are they? Sociability, um, because zebrafish are social animals. They don't like to be alone. They want to be with a group. Um, so how often, how, how much time do they spend near the shoal as, as opposed to away from it? And then there's two related ones. There's um, a, a predator and a novel object, which are measuring similar things. It's kind of hard to distinguish them. But basically, they're scared of a new thing that's in their tank, and they're scared of predators. So we use... Um, an image of a predator that would naturally predate them in the wild. So the idea is that they've got some sort of sense that this is a bad, scary thing. And uh, we see how they respond to that. So the ones that will spend more time away from the screen when we're showing something scary, uh, they're being more risk-averse, uh, more anxious, and less bold. So are these typical traits that people study um, when they're studying animal behavior? Uh, or are these particular to the zebrafish? Did you guys know um, that the zebrafish uh, demonstrate these particular traits? How did you guys choose these five specific traits to study? Yeah, so, th- so these are, are standard traits in the personality literature, but there's um, different ways of, of testing for them, and there'll be differences across species about what particular assays, as they're called, um, are best to test for these. And, uh, yeah, we were relying on the, the work of other people who've studied these things in zebrafish. So we're not doing anything particularly novel, um, but what's new is how we've combined them in this way. I know high throughput sort of technical, but our ability to test these things all at once mm-hmm. and quite quickly. So we can get through 64 fish in a day, which means that we can um, test a lot of fish and we can test them repeatedly. Okay. So how did you guys go about measuring uh, their behavioral response? Okay. So we create this setup where we have we have um, four tanks, which have uh, a stimulus tablet at one end and then a control tablet at the other end. Uh, we put a fish in all the tanks. We have the videos synced up so that they're all playing at the same time. And then we're filming from overhead. Um, and then we repeat this on the other side of this table we've got set up. So when it's all up and running, we're having eight fish being measured at one go. And then at the end of the video, um, when we, when we press, um, stop on, we'll pause on the video camera, uh, we can take all the fish out and then, you know, mix up the water. Uh, and then we put all, and then we put a new set of fish back in. And so this is the way we cycle through our behavioral trials. And then at the end of the day, we take out the memory card from the um, video recorder and it's a huge file. And then we have all these videos of which uh, some uh, patient research assistants then have to go through those video files on this software program called EthoVision. But there's other software programs that can do this for free um, where the you set up these arenas on the on the tank. So the video will be showing four tanks at once, but you can outline which, you know, the individual tanks and you say how long the tanks are. 
and then you say, this is a fish, and you tell the computer to track the fish and show where the fish is going, measure how fast it's swimming, and uh, how long it's spending in different areas of the tank. So what exactly are you guys looking for in these videos? How can you tell when a fish is being aggressive versus shy? We're looking for how it's behaving when the particular stimulus is being played on the computer tablet as opposed to when it's not being played and differences between the different stimulus types. And I mean, I'm, so this is a little tricky because we get so many variables from the, um, from the software. So, you know, do we want to look at distance from the screen? Do we want to look at distance within this zone or this zone? Do we want to look at um, you know, time spent swimming fast or total time spent swimming. So we get all these variables. And to be honest, I don't entirely know the best way to tease them apart. For the methods paper that you read, uh, we just looked at a few different variables as a sort of a proof of concept, but I'm not sure yet what is the best way to analyze it. So I need to go and read other papers, but it's probably going to be some kind of principal component analysis where you say, I've got all these variables. Uh, how, how can they be sort of mashed together? to explain the most variation that I see in my data. And then you can use that mashing of variables, which will hopefully be have a nicer distribution for your models. That can be your output. And then you can see if, if that response of variables, if that differs between individuals in terms of their sex or their size mm-hmm. or their treatment. So for our audience, we are referring to a 2018 paper published in the journal Zebrafish. Uh, so... Uh, Uh, You know, from what you just mentioned, actually, that leads me to my next question. Uh, Did you notice any differences between different zebrafish, maybe between males and females in terms of their behavioral responses? Not yet. But as I said, I haven't. Mm -hmm. uh, I've only just started looking at the data. So if you ask me in a a few months, (laughs) I might see something more interesting. Would you expect to see differences between males and females? Yeah, yeah, you usually usually do. But then in zebrafish, they're different sizes. So females are um, bigger than males. So then we'd have to see, is there a sex difference because they're different sexes or is it just because they're different sizes? Mm-hmm. Maybe throughout the study, while you were observing, were there particular behavioral syndromes or personality types that you noticed? No, but we also de- I also designed the study so that I wouldn't really have an idea of how it was going while I was mm-hmm. running it. Um, so I mentioned that, so the data I'm looking at the moment is for a a developmental temperature experiment where I manipulated my um, my embryos. The, the I manipulated the temperature that my embryos were reared at, uh, but then I got someone to blind the experiment, um, which means that I didn't know which of my fish were in what treatment and which family they were in while I was running the experiment um, so that I couldn't subconsciously bias the results or have an idea of how it was going. And while the trials are running, we're trying not to disturb the fish because if, if they sense any movement or vibration, it will change their behavior. So we put up all these borders and we basically back off. Um, so I don't actually watch the fish much. And also we have, it's a really big study. I've got 240 fish. Um, so it's, it's hard to keep track of who's who and I'm not really paying attention to, um, individual differences in their behavior. Okay. Do you think it's more likely that all the fish that you've included in the study would behave similarly or respond similarly, or do you would you expect to see a lot of variation among that group of fish? Definitely a lot of variation. Um, uh, do you know, because you're studying biology too, there's a lot of variation in basically everything you study. Um, but part of what's cool about uh, researching variation is that, is that that variation in itself is interesting. And so rather than going, oh, my data's so messy, what's all this noise? You can go, oh, but wait, 
um, is this actually telling me something? Uh, is, is there a pattern within this variation that's, that's showing how this is partitioned within individuals or is connected to variation in some other trait that I've measured? So what kind of information do you think the results of this study could give us or could reveal about zebrafish? Why is it important to understand you know, differences or variation in personality traits or behavioral responses among this one particular species? Hmm. Well, hopefully the results that we get will be interesting beyond just the zebrafish. Mm-hmm. Um, we're using zebrafish as a model organism, but uh, what we're seeing within them will probably apply to other species too. Zebrafish are most commonly used in biomedical research where the where the results are being applied to humans, which um, are obviously quite different in lots of ways. Um, so hopefully from this research we'll get a, we'll get a really good idea of the predictability of behaviour, uh, which is how how much are individuals varying in their consistency in their behaviour, as well as um, the repeatability of the behaviour between individuals. And I'm also really interested when we put all our data together, so both the personalities of these fish, but also their metabolic rates. Uh, I've got reproductive traits, um, their, their growth, uh, and also swim performance, um, how those traits are connected. So I'm guessing you wouldn't say that there is one specific underlying cause for different behavioral syndromes in zebrafish. Probably there's multiple factors. Yes. Okay. So what other animal species do you think could be studied using the computer technology, the tablet technology you guys have been using for this study? Um, lots of things. The easiest thing to apply straight away would be similarly sized fish, like mosquito fish or guppies, which are used in research all the time. Uh, but I don't see a reason why it couldn't be applied to lots of other species, as long as they're uh, pretty small, because uh, you'd need to display um, images on, on a tablet. You'd need the animal to be around the same size as something you can show on the tablet, so it's comparable. And you'd want the animal to uh, not be able to, to to be not be able to discern that they're looking at a computer image rather than a real thing. So if you applied it to different species, you'd need to do some pilot studies to you know design new videos to display on the tablets and um, test that what you're seeing is a real thing. Uh, but and a reason why we were able to do our study is because other people had done those types of pilot studies for us, where they had compared a video stimulus to, say, a clay model or or a live animal. Um, yeah, so it all, all takes a little bit of work. But if you're a guppy person or a mosquito fish person or a small fish person, then I think it's a, a, a pretty neat system. All right. Well, I can't wait to read about the results of this study. Rose, thank you so much. No worries. Thanks for having me. That was Rose O'Day. PhD candidate at the Evolution and Ecology Research Center in Sydney, Australia. Up next, we have Christina Horbach. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Anika Hazra. With me now is Christina Horbach, Assistant Professor in the Department of Animal Science at the University of California, Davis. Tina, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you, Anika. All right, so tell me about your research with pigs. Well, I am a trained psychologist, 
And so I've spent um, many years looking at how different animals and social mammals in particular communicate um, using body language or vocalizations. And um, I've changed my focus from the more exotic wild species like dolphins and elephants to look at how our domestic pigs use different body language or sounds to communicate. And in um, researching how pigs communicate on the farm between mother and piglet or one adult to another adult, um, I've been um, finding that there's a lot of distinct individual differences. And these individual differences are pretty consistent over time. And that's really what the definition of personality is. Whereas we think of personality kind of in a more um, human, anthropomorphic Oh, that's such a type A personality kind of thing. Mm -hmm. With my research in pigs, I look at whether or not there's a difference in how aggressive one pig is to another or how curious they are and how all of those differences in behavior traits can um, impact their uh, welfare, how they're coping in their lives. So why did you choose to study personality traits in pigs specifically? I um, honestly am someone who is not focused on a species. I've worked with a variety of um, species in my past. I've studied killer whales and elephants. Um, and I had an opportunity to work with domestic animals um, and livestock species with that. And pigs are a great model to study um, personality or cognition because they are very uh, social. They have a... Um, great complexity in their social structure. Um, they're actually, they have the same matrilineal society, meaning that they're female run, similar to elephants and killer whales. Pigs also have the ladies run, and particularly the older ladies, they run the social group. So I came to work with pigs as an opportunity in my um, postdoc research at the University of Pennsylvania to um, see how we can adapt some of the research that's done um, with uh, primates or dolphins, that sort of higher level cognition research, and apply that to some domestic farm animal research to see if we can evaluate when these animals are in a fear state or a pain state or when they're content. And so um, pigs became the first species to work with um, because they're a great model and they're very intelligent and they're very charming. <laughs> so the focus of your lab at UC Davis is, is studying the connection between personality traits and, like you've already mentioned, welfare, individual welfare. So can you explain in a little more detail what that means? Yes, yeah. So animal welfare science is the study of how an animal, particularly an animal under human care, is coping with its environment. So this includes our pets, um, the livestock species, animals in the lab, and zoo animals. So we as humans have the responsibility to provide the care and the environment, nutrition, um, comfort that is adequate for each species. And this science evaluates how the animals are doing. So we look at their um, physiology, you know, are they gaining weight? Do they have any cuts? Are they lame or limping? You know, how's the environment impacting that part of their um, system. We also look at their behavior. Are they engaging in species typical behavior? Like is the bird scratching or is the pig rooting? Mm -hmm. um, things like that. And we look at the 
um, the psychology of the animal. Are they in a state that is negative, like boredom or fear or anxiety? Even though they have all the food and comfort they could want, what, what's missing or what's happening in their environment that we can change to improve their welfare? Um, so in my research looking at individual differences in how they respond to um, stimuli in their environment, so you can say that that's something that changes in their environment, or it could be something that's constant in their environment, Animal A may be fine with the change and may actually want to approach it. It could be a bold animal, whereas animal B would cower away, not be curious, not be bold, and perhaps they're kind of in a chronic stress state. So understanding how there's a difference in how animals respond to change um, or the quality of their environment really could impact their welfare. So how do these differences in animals that are, you know, held in captivity, how do they arise within this group of animals that are in, this, that are in the same environment? Well, there's a, a, a wonderful, rich building history of looking at these individual differences in animals that has come from the ecology field. There's a, um, a Professor Andy C. here at UC Davis, and he was one of the pioneers to look at consistent differences in animals um, in a wild setting, it could be with different fish species um, or insects or birds, and how you find that these uh, different behavior traits, which he labeled behavioral syndromes because he didn't know what quite to call them, um, they impact their survivability in the wild, their uh, their fitness level, you know, their their ability to uh, reproduce and have offspring. So. The um, history of animal personality or behavioral syndromes in animals um, has been around for a while. And so the differences in animals' behavior traits um, has, has always existed in wild animals and captive animals. And um, we're finding that it really is a big influence on um, health and um, survivability and, and things like that. So you've mentioned that uh, you define personality as um, a set of consistent traits that are demonstrated by an animal over time, over its lifetime, I guess. So uh, do you think that personality can mean the same thing for humans and non-human animals, or are they is personality distinct between us and other types of animals? Yeah, that's a, um, a funny uh, comparison. Um, to try and make when I describe my research because we have the um, sort of um, everyday uh, use of the word personality among, um, uh, you know, civilians. And then there are, there are psychologists that study personality psychology in humans. And that involves a lot of surveys, self-reporting by, by people. How would you uh, behave in this situation, for example? And so that's a little bit different. In animal personality research, we, of course, can't ask the cow how she would act if a wolf suddenly showed up. But what we can do is put the animals in different um, settings, different behavior tests that really kind of uh, make them show their true colors, I like to say, mm-hmm. where we um, present the animals with something that's startling or something that's interesting, or we isolate them and they're all alone and see how they respond, or we bring them to a brand new environment and see that some like to explore the whole area while others freeze for the entire behavior test. And so human personality psychology 
I think it'd be great if we could uh, see more of those kind of tests because what I say my personality is could be very different than what how I actually act if I was put in a behavior test. Self-awareness, I don't think, is that strong with a lot of humans, but I'm not an expert in human personality psychology, but um, with animals, it's it's a comparative science in that it's how there's differences in how um, both organisms, humans and um, animals, respond to changes in their environment. Why do you think it's important to understand uh, the, the psychological welfare of domesticated farm animals and also animals held in captivity? Yeah, that's... Um, that's been such a challenge for um, <clears throat> for scientists to use what we can, knowing of the animal's health and the behavior that we're seeing. Can we confidently say that they're in a good state of welfare? Mm-hmm. We can have an animal that's eating well, that's gaining weight, doesn't have any cuts or lesions, um, and it's showing the normal behavior patterns. You know, it's resting a good amount of time. It's walking around and being social a good amount of time, but it's really hard to confidently say, um, now can we guarantee that animal is not also in a low arousal negative state like boredom, or maybe it's a high arousal negative state like anxiety, and we're just not, we're not good enough at picking up those cues that the animal is giving. So by adapting some of the research that has been established for decades in psychology, where we use uh, rodents as models for humans to do a lot of research on anxiety or stress, um, social disorders. A lot of what you can say uh, the pharmaceutical world is built on are using those animals and their behavior in these assumed um, psychological states. We can use those same behavior experiments, but now put a sheep or a pig or a cow in the test and adapt it for that species, but then look at how how do they respond to unknown. You know, an animal's response to something ambiguous in their environment could say a lot about their emotional state, because if an individual is in a negative state, they may see anything as unknown as threatening. Versus if an animal is in a more positive state, something unknown could be not threatening, and perhaps it could be um, intriguing, and they'll approach it. So... When we see the same behavior and the same physical state in two animals, we can't confidently say that they're both experiencing the same emotional state. So doing some psychology research really helps us break that apart. So comparing different kinds of animals, cows, sheep, pigs, uh, how do you think personality traits in pigs differ from those other animals? You know, I can't say that I would know that they do. Um, There are um, certain behavior patterns in pigs um, that may predispose them to have a certain trait. What I mean is that pigs are omnivores and they forage and search for food um, ranging from, you know, it could be eggs and reptiles or it could be fruits and grass and roots. So they may be more inclined to be a little bit more curious in their environment, whereas sheep and cows, they're grazers, so they don't really need to have that type of thought process. They go around and they graze. And that could, but I don't want to say it should, could have a difference in a curiosity level among the individuals. Um, so those those kind of things, whether or not an animal is more likely to be um, uh, threatened by a predator from above or not, that, that could separate the behaviors that we see in, in chickens versus pigs. 
Um, you know, because there's not a lot of hawks that are swooping down and picking up a pig, but, you know, there probably are for chickens. And so fearfulness could be at a different level. Okay. So do you think that the, the welfare of an animal influences its personality or its personality can influence its welfare or does it does it work both ways? I think it works both ways that um, a behavior trait or personality trait or behavioral syndrome, it's not a set in stone guarantee you are going to have good welfare or bad welfare. Um, the welfare state of the animal, whether or not they are hungry or thirsty, if their um, essential needs are being met, or if they are in pain or not, that could influence then how they respond to change in their environment. And so it's very much related. The personality and the welfare of the animal um, uh, influence each other. Okay, so let's get into some of your research methods. Can you describe some of the different types of, of personality experiments you've used to study pigs? Yes. So um, I've adapted a few tests that have been um, established for the rodent literature. Uh, for example, there's one called an open field test where in the rodent literature, uh, a mouse would be taken away from its home cage and placed in a... a a brand new environment. It could be barren or it could, there could be a toy or they're in there. And um, researchers look at the activity of the mouse. If they freeze, if they are smelling around or if they're not smelling and just walking aimlessly trying to find a way out. Um, I've done the same type of test with pigs where we look at how they respond to this isolation, being in a new environment and whether or not there's any exploration of this new environment but the difference for an open field test is that um, in rodent literature, there's a lot of attention to whether or not the animal is hugging the walls, going around around on the walls, or if it takes the risk and goes in the middle of this open field. Mm. Uh, because uh, rodents are uh, vulnerable when they're out in the open and they want to find cover. That's not the same for pigs. So for pigs, we look at where they are in the arena, and uh, generally just their activity, how much walking they're doing, how much vocalizing are they doing, are they smelling the area, are they trying to find a way out, um, or are they frozen the entire time. So it's it tells a lot about the animal's um, character, um, how they're going to respond to this sudden um, threat. So you refer to that as exploratory behavior. Yes. Mm -hmm. So what kind of personality trait would that be associated with? Uh, bravery, maybe? Curiosity? Well, yeah, yeah. It's really difficult to create a label for a trait and to not be um, anthropomorphic and assign adjectives to a trait um, because of what we humans assume is being expressed. So when I see an animal, like a pig in an open field test, um, smelling the walls and the floor for the entire five-minute test, um, then I call that exploratory behavior, and I quantify it, and then I call that an exploratory trait. All right. Uh, so what kind of personality traits do you see uh, in pigs that could be you know, comfortable around humans? Because you do study domesticated pigs that obviously would spend a lot of time around humans. So what kind of traits do those types of pigs demonstrate? Um, yeah, so there is still a difference in a um, sort of avoidance of human response in our domestic pigs. Although they've been tamed, 
for over 9,000 years. We've domesticated our um, pigs. There is still a difference in how you can place a pig in an area by itself, or it can still be in its pen with its group. And then you approach it, and you can look at the distance that it takes for the animal to move away. That's um, sort of its its flight zone, it's called. You can think of it as kind of like a personal bubble around each pig. And some pigs have a small personal bubble, and you can walk right up to them and touch their snout. Other pigs, as soon as you get maybe a few feet away, they uh, flee um, to not allow you to get close. And so those are the kind of um, tests that I'm running to try and make them um, farmer-friendly, I want to say. These are very common um interactions between um, stock people and their pigs on the farm. So they already know which pigs are going to run and which pigs let you touch them. And um, and that's really, um, that could be really informative for how they respond to the farmers when, for example, the sows, the adult females, are um, giving birth to the litter. They could be very protective of their piglets. And so maybe there's a relationship between when the sows were just pregnant, how you can interact with them and how close you can get versus when they are with their piglets in their nursery, how they respond to humans or not. And so there's there's still a wide variety in how our domestic pigs respond to humans. So what would influence how a piglet would react to a human approaching it? What influences its uh, you know personal boundaries if it's if it's very young? In uh, young pigs, there uh, we see differences in their um, we call it a latency to approach. So how quickly do they approach uh, something brand new in their environment? So it could be a new toy or something they've never seen before or smelled before. Um, and it could be their latency to approach a human. And so um, we see this um, consistency in behavior over many contexts where you'll have some young pigs that are quick to approach a new toy and smell it and bite it or they're quick to approach a human and try and bite at their boots and smell it and they have a very short flight um, distance they're okay with a human getting close um, and so these are the type of things that separate young piglets and how they respond uh, to humans are there pigs that just don't ever become comfortable around humans no matter how much time they spend around them, if they grew up around humans? I can't say for certain. I have not um, evaluated that or seen that. Every pig um, will experience something with a human that may be, um, I'm going to say, memorable. Just like for many animals, if there's, um, just like for your dogs, if they have a, an experience with their veterinarian, then maybe they're always going to be fearful of a person in a white lab coat. Um, so for pigs, there could be some pigs that perhaps they have um, a behavioral trait or, or a personality that is not curious, not bold, very fearful, and they will be consistently fearful as they develop. They could have had nothing happen to them, and they're just born that way, or it could have been an early experience that um, – they continue to refer to that association of a, a human uh, picked me up and gave me a vaccination and it hurt. So now whenever I see a human, I'm scared. That's possible. So what personality traits would you expect to see in animals uh, that are better able to cope with a stressful environment? And what traits would you see in those that can't cope? I don't have the answer to that yet, but that's what I'm researching. I'm trying to see first can we establish a variety of traits 
in this species. Um, like aggressive or avoidant of humans, fearful, curious, things like that. And then we're going to um, take a, a, a larger scale study into looking at what animals tend to um, have stomach ulcers, for example. That's a problem for a lot of pigs. Um, and we know in humans, there's a lot of connection between chronic stress, having a long cortisol rush, and having stomach ulcers. And so perhaps we'll find that animals that are um, bold are the ones that can cope in one way or another with stress and that because they don't develop ulcers or they are less likely to get sick. And perhaps animals that are more shy, they don't approach novelty quickly and they um, don't engage very socially, perhaps those animals are more likely to be susceptible to stress and then therefore more likely to get sick. Those are just um, hypotheses that I'm mm -hmm. trying to work around right now. Okay. So what are some uh, of the more interesting results you've had so far or you've seen so far from your research? Um, a really um, great result that um, I found is that Piglets are handled a lot when they're young by um, farm staff to give them vaccinations or to weigh them, things like that. And some piglets squeal and struggle and thrash around the entire time when you're just holding them gently, while other piglets are silent the entire time and they don't move at all. And um, I've uh, done tests where I've looked at female pigs um, at a very young age, around three weeks of age, and I held them. Um, for a period of time, like a minute, and I looked at this difference in struggling and vocalizing and resisting this restraint. Um, I found that the females that were really um, resistant to being handled, they maintained that resistance as they grew up. And when they were adults themselves, they were very aggressive. They became the ones who were almost the dominant bullies. They were not pushovers. They were quickly to approach humans and to novel things. So there could be something in early indications of an adult personality um, trait in pigs, whereas the other ones that were very silent when I held them, they were more shy as adults. They did not engage in aggressive behavior. They are more submissive, actually. And um, I have yet to see if that actually could impact their um, health yet. I haven't seen a difference there, but there could be something building with how they respond then to aggression towards humans when they have their piglets. If we can maybe predict that in a really young age um, piglet. Do you think the negative experiences are more likely to, to impact the personality traits in a pig than positive ones, especially considering, you know, childhood experiences? I, I can't say for certain. I, for many species, um, Early stress certainly um, can impact later sensitivity to stress, same as early pain experiences can make individuals hypersensitive to pain as they develop. And this is across humans, rats, primates, sheep, all of that um, uh, theme has been seen. So I can't say that a negative experience is more likely to influence future behavior, but it certainly would make sense in terms of natural selection and fitness to avoid anything that would cause you harm um, or threaten you. Um, but positive experiences are also very important. There's a lot of research about having um, 
good handling experiences between humans and pigs when they're really young, that will influence how easy they are to move onto a truck or to get to move down a hallway. So positive experiences are also very important. All right. So that leads me to my next question, actually. Um, Why do you choose to study personality and behavioral traits in pigs in these stressful situations? Why focus specifically on stressful conditions? Yeah. um, So these contexts of isolation, restraint, um, novelty, um, these are contexts where really the animal's true colors are shown. I also look at just the animal's general activity within their litter. How much do they play? How much do they um, suckle um, and investigate their mom? Um, But so far, that hasn't really shown a large amount of difference. It's when it's really the animals are pushed to the survival extreme that we can see that there's a difference in how they're going to respond. Um, There are differences, though, in um, non-stressful contexts like feeding or being social um, that I also look at. But these stressful contexts are simply because it really is um, where we're able to see an honest response by the animals. Do you think the the personality traits of domesticated animals um, are different from those that are wild? So we're talking about maybe the same type of animal, maybe the same species. So maybe domesticated pigs versus wild pigs. I think that we certainly have... um, uh, changed the quality of our behaviors in our domestic animals. So in my uh, research with our domestic pigs, we found that there's um, sort of three um, facets to their life that can explain their differences. It, it's their physical environment, their social environment, and humans. Mm-hmm. Um, so their response to humans may be very different, that spectrum, that continuum spread of avoidant versus um, non-avoidant of humans in a wild pig. Um, so we could see, I would think, the same, um, let's say, basic fundamental traits of social, aggressive, curious, bold, uh, things that are linked to survival that have not and will not be bred out of domestic animals, but we may have introduced something in a different uh, docility or tameness in our domestic animals. Uh, you've already mentioned a few times already that pigs are actually social animals. Uh, can you explain what that means and how that can influence their personality traits? Yeah. So um, in the wild and even feral pigs, they um, live in social groups called sounders. And a sounder is um, adult female pigs and their litter of piglets. The um, male piglets will leave their um, natal sounder when they become sexually mature. And uh, adult uh, boars, the males, they are solitary for the most part. So there is a strict hierarchy in the sounders. And so individual identification is required for a hierarchy. you got to know who is who to know if you're more of a top dog versus another one. So pigs um, identify each other through smell um, uh, predominantly, but also sight and sound. And um, there is a lot of um, complex interactions that happens within the sounder um, and a lot of group activities like when it's time for nursing at lactation, the dominant sow will start making these grunting calls and she'll go lay down and then the subordinate sows will all join her in the grunting lactation call and they'll all kind of lay down together. And it's a, a big group um, nursing event and there's some cross-suckling among the piglets. So um, 
And then when they're done uh, nursing, the dominant one will get up and lead the group and they'll continue to look around and forage for food about eight to ten hours a day. Are the sows within the same group, are they related to each other? Yes, they are. Um, for the most part, the um, female piglets stay with their mothers in the same sounder, although some may leave and start their own sounder. And these type of matrilineal societies are seen in um, elephants and killer whales. That's really cool. So, so how does the sociality, how does it influence the personality types you would see within a group of pigs? Yeah, so as um, it would seem, the aggressiveness of an animal, how um, frequently they start a fight and how often they win a fight, um, it is seen a lot in many species so that more aggressive animals could be seen as more dominant, but it's not always a guarantee. Um, For a lot of species, the most dominant animal is not aggressive simply because that animal doesn't need to be aggressive. Just their presence is alone for subordinates to walk away and avoid them. Um, and it could be the ones that are more in the middle that they get in a lot more fights and tussles for um, the top spot of the middle. So differences in aggressiveness and also in um, sociality, how often an animal wants to be near another animal or are willing to share food with another animal, that can very much influence how much they are in the center of the social group or if they're more peripheral and there's a, a big difference perhaps in their likelihood of being higher in the chain of command or getting a good resting spot or food spot if they're less social. Uh, can pigs learn behaviors from one another? Yes, yes, they can. Um, uh, for example, when um, piglets are weaned from their mom and they're put into a new nursery pen together, they have um, a brand new water system that they haven't seen. And pigs are very curious, taking from their natural um, instincts, they will explore their environment. And so you'll have one piglet see this weird little contraption and like nose it and with their snout and bite on it, all of a sudden water comes out and you'll see other piglets watching. And then they'll also learn like, Oh, this is where the water is. And then they all start to investigate more. I'm wondering, I asked that question because I'm wondering if, if personality traits can be passed or taught from a, a, you know, a sow to their piglets. So say you have a dominant sow who's very aggressive. Would her piglets more like be more likely to be aggressive as well? That's a great question. And that's something that I'm also hoping to look at is whether or not these traits are heritable, if there's a genetic heritability to certain traits, um, or if, for example, we do a cross-fostering and we put piglets of a very um, non-aggressive, submissive sow, and we have these piglets be raised by the dominant, very aggressive sow. What kind of behavior will we see with them? And that's something I just don't know yet. All right, Tina, thank you so much. Thank you very much. If you want to learn more about Rose O'Day or Christina Horback, you can check out their links on our website at www.scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. 
You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs>